uh, as we begin this morning, all across our country uh, in churches gathering together to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ, they are remembering the sanctity of life. Today is what's called Sanctity of Life Sunday, and um, we all know that uh, Sanctity of Life um, resonates and uh, comes from the foundation of the love of God that he has for all people that he has created, that he has formed and made. Let me remind you this morning of Psalm 139, which reads, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So today we remember this morning, um, not just the countless number of children that are aborted every year through um, abortion, but the countless lives that are taken in various different ways. And God has called us to be people that uh, are protectors of life, who represent the author of life, those that are willing to defend the helpless, to care for the broken, not only to stand for the cause of the unborn, but to stand for the cause of, of the elderly, to stand for the cause of the refugee, to stand for the cause of women and children who are oppressed. So we come today to remember and to pray as we begin that God would protect life and that he would use his church to make a stand for those who care less about the life that he has given them and to others. So if you would, let's pray this morning. Father, we start this morning um, thinking about the life that you have created in us and the countless lives that you have created all over this world. All the human beings that are made in the image of God And Lord, we know, God, that because of sin and Satan that is, um, which has corrupted this world, Lord, we know that people devalue life today. Um, Not just the life of the unborn, but the life of human beings. Because of their belief and their worldview, uh, life is meaningless to them. And thus they are willing to take it and to take that which does not belong to them. And God, we acknowledge this morning that you are the author of life, the creator of all things, and and each and every life that you have made belongs to you. And so, Father, as your people, God, may we take a stand to defend those that are hurting and oppressed, those have yet to been born into this world, God, that we would um, do what we can to speak truth against that type of um, sin against you and against your creation. God, may we be um, those that are willing to 
seek the cause of life, that we would make sacrifices ourselves, Father, to help those in need. Um, And God, we know that that is what you have called us to do uh, as your people. And so, God, today we worship you, and we ask you, Lord, uh, for mercy uh, for those, even today, even this morning, God, as maybe women and, and, and men are considering um, having an abortion this morning, Lord, we, we pray for them. God, we pray you would turn their, their hearts and their minds away um, from that decision. And Lord, even today, God, you would save them. God, you would raise up families that they could see that would adopt those children. Um, Father, for those that are elderly and, and oftentimes uh, people want to, Lord, to, to end their lives because of inconvenience. Lord, we pray that even we would stand um, as defenders of them, knowing, God, that you love them, you form them, you care for them. And Lord, ultimately, God, may we be ambassadors of the spiritual life that you give us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would <clears throat> be willing to proclaim that life is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study in the harmony of the Gospels and kind of a second part to our series from last week on the kingdom of God. Last week we talked about the kingdom of God inaugurated in Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the kingdom of God consummated. Um, The kingdom of God consummated when Christ returns. Many people know this as the second coming of Christ. Many of these Uh, Many of us understand and know that and find comfort and hope in knowing that Jesus Christ is returning. And there is an expectation for that. Even as we think about those uh, horrific um, murders upon the innocent, we long for the, the Lord Jesus Christ to come again when there will no longer be pain and there will no longer be suffering um, in, in this world. Um, and so today we, we look at this kingdom of God consummated, which is Jesus coming and completing what he started when he came into this world as the babe in the manger. Consummated means completing. He is uh, carrying through his task of bringing the kingdom of God uh, into this, this world. We have talked about last week um, kind of like the promise of that kingdom, uh, the the theme of that kingdom that was represented throughout history. When Jesus came, God did not start to reign then. He has always reigned. But Jesus Christ, as God in the flesh, came and inaugurated the kingdom of God on the earth. And we know and we look forward to the fact that he will return once again to rule and reign for all eternity on a new heaven and a new earth. Now, you'll have to understand that the concept in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming into the world, their thought of an Old Testament Jewish person was that when the Messiah would come, it would be a one-time act. It would be a one-time event where Jesus, or not, they wouldn't call him Jesus, they would say the Messiah would come in this messianic age and that he would rule and reign. And as we know through the traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, by that time, 
that understanding of the Messiah had become something more of a political, social, cultural Messiah, one who would rule and reign over the nations, making Israel a great nation again, and oppressing those who had oppressed the Jewish people for years upon years. And so the the Jewish expectation when Jesus was born into the world was not a spiritual Messiah, not a Messiah who would forgive people of their sins. The expectation for many of them and most of them was that a Messiah would come and rule and reign as a warrior, as a king, as one who would take back control of the, the glory and the majesty of the nation of Israel, as they might say. But in the Old Testament... The promise was never for that type of Messiah. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, we're reminded in Daniel chapter 7 that the Ancient of Days would would give authority to the Son of Man. And that Son of Man, we are told, will have a dominion that is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom shall not be destroyed. In Psalm 80, The psalmist Asaph says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, please have regard for this vine. Verse 17, he says, Let your hand be on the the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. And so in the Old Testament, the idea of the son of man, the, the promised Messiah, we know now is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that Messiah was going to come and usher in a new age for Israel, usher in a new kingdom for Israel, which they expected to be a physical, cultural, political, social rule over the oppressors of the people of Israel. Well, we know differently. We know that Jesus Christ came to usher in that spiritual kingdom. And as I tried to introduce to you last week, and, and what we're going to talk a lot more about today is how people have coined that an already and a not yet kingdom. An already and a not yet kingdom. Well, what, why is it called an already kingdom? Well, because as we looked at last week, this, this whole culmination of, of the Old Testament history coming and being fulfilled in Jesus Christ... That, that Jesus Christ come into the, came into the world as the promised Messiah to sit on the eternal throne of David. He ushered in that kingdom. Thus making it the already kingdom. He demonstrated his sovereign reign and his victory over God's enemies during his earthly ministry. Think about it for a minute. The promises of the Messiah, the promises of that messianic age included peace It included joy. It included uh, the reign over God's enemies. And Jesus fulfilled those things when he came. Jesus lived the sinless life. He represented sinlessness because he was the man without sin. So he brought forth this messianic picture of what we now look forward to in the future. A world without sin. Jesus was that world. He was ushering in the world of, uh, or the, he he is the man of, of, without sin, was kind of pointing forward to a messianic age without sin. He lived the perfect life, rejected sin at every turn, although tempted. 
And there in the garden or in the, in the wilderness, the infamous temptation with Satan, Jesus succeeded where mankind failed. Jesus was able to not only uh, turn away from the temptation of sin, which Adam and Eve could not do, which mankind cannot do, but he literally defeated Satan in the garden at that time. That represents the kingdom, the defeat of God's enemies. Jesus gives a final or a, a blow to Satan in the garden, and he eventually gives the final blow to Satan on the cross. And of course, that's an already kingdom because Jesus is coming into the world. He's living a sinless life, representing a world by which we'll be without sin. He's defeating his enemy, which is proclaiming his king, kingly rule. He's teaching with authority. He is teaching the truth of the kingdom. Not a moment of error comes from his mouth. He declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is personifying wisdom, the wisdom of God. And what is the, the messianic age, what is this future age that we look forward to? It, it's, it's that we will be surrounded with truth. There'll be no error. There'll be no lies. There'll be no deceit. We will be in the presence of a God who is a, a God of truth. And of course, Jesus comes in, he ushers in that already kingdom as the way, the truth, and the life. He casts out demons and displays a power over all evil, not just of Satan, but Satan and his demons. He performs miracles, the healing of the sick and the lame and the raising of the dead. Again, showing this kingdom power, this power represented that will one day be affected over all his, his kingdom where no one will be sick. Well, he will reign and rule over all sickness, all death. And so there Jesus is reflecting this already kingdom. And the most important that we don't think about is that he comes in preaching forgiveness of sins. Remember the story where uh, Jesus encounters the friends who lower down the man through the roof? And they're interested in Jesus healing this man. Jesus actually forgives this man's sins. Who can forgive the sins of a man except God? And what kind of a world do we look forward to when, when Christ is ruling and reigning for all eternity than a world that is completely and totally free of sin where we are experiencing the salvation from God's wrath and the forgiveness of sins? So folks, that is the already kingdom. That Jesus Christ ushers in that kingdom and guess what? We live in that kingdom. We experience that as the church where we see God doing great things like the forgiveness of sins. Where you and I have family members that, that we see come to know Christ and we rejoice because we see the dead come back to life. We can't say that's a kingdom in the future if people are rising from the dead spiritually now. We can't say that uh, it's a kingdom in the future if we pray, and at times we pray it's God's will to heal someone physically. We don't give credit to science. We say God healed this person. 
That doesn't mean that God heals all the sick. But God can choose to heal the sick, showing his power over sickness, his power over sin. And of course, in Jesus, his power over death. When we know that when we believe and trust in Christ, we will one day rise again. And so the reality of this already kingdom is that in our union with Christ, we already experience the blessings of the kingdom, and yet we will experience a fuller uh, experience in the kingdom when we are in his presence. For example, probably your favorite section of scripture, I know it is mine, Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. The famous Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks of our deadness in Christ. But verse 4, the great but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we are already alive. We were dead, we were made alive. That is an already kingdom. And listen to this. So by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The already of the already kingdom is that you are already in Christ seated in the heavenly places with him as you sit in this church today. Your union with Christ is that you already have a position before the Savior of the world. You are already seated with him and yet... Not yet completely with him, right? You are already seated with him, and yet one day you will forever eternally be seated with him. That's the already and the not yet. You are already saved from the wrath of God. You are already saved from the wrath against your sin, You are already experienced salvation, and yet one day you will fully experience that salvation when God brings judgment upon the world and you escape that judgment. And so that's the already kingdom. That's the kingdom that we began to talk about last week. And so today, we want to talk about the not yet of the not yet kingdom. The already and the not yet, what we're looking forward to, as many of us have been taught and trained in their churches today, we call this the second coming of Jesus. The Jews didn't think it would have been a, they didn't understand it as a two-part coming. When the Messiah came, they were confused because what they were expecting politically from Jesus, he wasn't doing. He was not ruling and reigning over Rome. Rome put him on a cross and killed him. But Jesus, bringing a kingdom upon this earth that was unknown to them, began to teach of his death upon this cross, but then him coming again. Looking, to the for, looking forward to the day that he would come again and we would experience his kingdom fully. That kingdom that I call a not yet kingdom. Look at Luke chapter 17. Let's read 22 through 37. He said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. 
And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So as we think about this this consummated kingdom, this not yet kingdom, let's focus on Five different things which help us understand this better. First of all, there should be a longing for this kingdom. A longing for the consummation. It's a future that all believers should long for to be with Jesus. And that's what he tells his disciples in verse 22. He says, the days are coming where you will lust after You will long for, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Epithumeo is the the lust, it's the craving. And Jesus is using it in a positive sense, where Paul the Apostle uses it oftentimes in the negative of the lust and the cares of the world. He's saying, you will so desire these things. Why? You will so desire the de- just one of the days of the Son of Man. The first day of the Son of Man. Why? Because of the persecution and the suffering that these disciples were promised. Because Jesus knew and Jesus promised them that they would face the fire of this earth before he returned. That he, w- he knew that they would go through persecution and they would go through suffering just as he was the first fruits of that suffering. They knew- he knew it. And so their longing and their desire comes on the, the tail end of living a life, of standing for Christ, being crucified upside down, being beheaded and killed and burned at the stake because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ who suffered the first in that way at the first. And so Jesus is, is telling them, listen, things are going to get hard. The world's going to bear down upon you and you are going to so long for and desire those days. And so the question this morning to us is, if we 
don't face such a great persecution, should we not still have that longing? Should we not still crave and long for those days where Jesus Christ returns and removes the brokenness of this world? Where babies are no longer being murdered day by day through these abortions? Where marriages are no longer broken? Where people's bodies are not ravaged by disease? Can we not still long for that day? And I think we do. But it's the fire of persecution that forces us to grab hold and, and, and not be distracted from that time. See, the disciples were not going to be distracted from the coming of the Lord because the persecution was so heavy, that's all they, they hoped for. That's all they longed for. As they sat in prisons or they, they faced firing squads, they were able to cling tightly to the promises of God, which promised them resurrection in their bodies. You can cut off my head, but God's going to give me a new head. And my fear in America today is that we are so distracted from the pleasantries of this world that we don't long for that day. We're so, we're so at ease with life and, and our circumstances that, that we don't long for that day like we should. So my, my encouragement to you this morning as I encourage myself is to keep our hearts and our minds focused, persecution or not, on the coming of the Lord Jesus. Be reminded and desire that coming Because God has promised and he will fulfill it. And as we long for that day, let us live as people who represent what that day represents. That day represents Jesus ushering in the final stages of his kingdom. A kingdom of holiness. A kingdom of righteousness. A kingdom of salvation and forgiveness. A kingdom of mercy and grace. That's why Paul tells Titus in chapter 2 of, of Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You know, depending on your eschatology and the timeline of the events of how Jesus comes into the world, you would probably, regardless of that eschatology, you would agree that the Bible calls us ambassadors. We are ambassadors of Jesus. We are like the heralds that go out into the world and say, The king's coming! The king's coming! Get ready, the king is coming! 
Now, I believe that we're going to, to be those ambassadors and those heralds up until the day that Jesus comes. And, and when he comes back, we're ushering him back into the city, back into the kingdom that he is going to establish in this world. But regardless, we are those ambassadors crying the, out to, to God saying, the king's coming, the king's coming. And as ambassadors, we reflect that in our own lives. Lives of righteousness and holiness. Not only longing for it ourselves, but warning others about it as we go. So that's the longing of the consummation, but there's also the timing of it. And folks, the timing is simple. We don't know the timing. (laughs) It's a future that no man can know. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of those days, but you will not see it. And they will say, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. Jesus is merely telling these disciples and preparing them, don't spend too much time trying to figure out when this is going to happen. People will try to do that. We have meteorologists, we also have eschatologists. Eschatology is the study of the last things, but we have these eschatologists who are trying to predict when that's going to happen. And guess what? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 13 that concerning the day and the hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So the New Testament, Jesus gives us uh, signs. Jesus gives us kind of, uh, as he calls them, like birth pains to kind of understand as time goes along. But it is a timeline that we will never know. We can strive to understand eschatology because we want to uh, worship the king and understand his kingdom. By all means, as we study Revelation and try to wrap our minds around such a, a, a unique and, and important book of God's Word, we are hopefully walking away from that, not only with our brains hurting, but with our minds focused on a glorious kingdom of God. A glorious kingdom. Don't allow the confusion and the difficulty of your interpretation of Revelation to walk away from the end of Revelation where Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the, 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 the one who rules on the throne over all time. And so it's a future that we cannot know. And instead of giving people a time in which he will turn, instead, in like a parable in, in Luke chapter 12, he tells us just to be ready. Just be ready for his return. You know, I wonder if, if the Lord Jesus, when, when some get to heaven, if he's going to say, look, you spent too much time trying to figure out the timeline that I told you you wouldn't know, instead of readying yourself and, and, and living in the world as if you were just ready and prepared for the coming to come. Just be prepared. That's what I'm telling you. And parable after parable reminds us of that, like Luke chapter 12. Hold your place there. Look at Luke chapter 12. It should be just a couple pages. Verse 35 and 40 through 40. 
Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. That wakefulness is alertness, it's readiness. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus, in this kind of a pseudo parable, talking about a homeowner, talking about those that are prepared um, for the master to come home as servants. The, the, The important truth to walk away from that is that it is an unexpected time in history where God will send, or the, the Son will come back down to this earth and He will bring and usher in the, fine, the finality of His eternal kingdom, creating a new heaven and a new earth. And while there may be signs throughout history that are continually reminding us that this is going to happen, we don't know a specific uh, timetable or timeline for that to happen, and so we just remain ready like, like the, the verse 39 says, if the, if the master of the house would have known when the thief was coming, the thief comes unexpectedly. And so we too should be ready for that return. And I have to ask myself, well, what is the good, what is the good in not telling us the precise timing? What is the good in that? Well, number one, I think it declares the sovereign rule over God of my eye calendar. You know what I mean? It reminds me like the tree in the garden that God is sovereign and he does not owe me information beyond what he has willed and decreed to give me. As if we stand before God and say, God, I I deserve to know when you are coming precisely. It just would make my life fit better into the mold so I can plan my day and my my time. It's like that new commercial, uh, I don't even know the company, Uh, it's an insurance company and, and there's a group of people sitting around a table and they get a notification and they're saying, what, there's, there's a flood coming next week? I don't have time for a flood. Um, do you guys think we could do the flood maybe two days later, maybe at 6 or 7 o'clock? And it's just this preposterous and yet simple truth that we cannot, we cannot predict those things. We, we, we don't get a notification and say, hey, are you ready for this? It's a natural disaster. And in the same way, we do not deserve to know those things. We just trust in a sovereign God who's going to carry out his plan and even allows us the warning to be prepared for it. Praise God that you have heard the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ that in that day when he comes, you are not on the side of judgment, you are on the side of salvation and glory. 
So what's the good in not telling us? It reminds us of his sovereignty. I think it's also a barometer of our faith in his sovereignty. If Christianity is given a time and a place for Christ's return, we think, oh, well, if I just knew when Jesus was coming, man, I'd be a better evangelist. I'd be more faithful because I, I know Christ is coming and so I'm getting everything ready. I'm getting the house in order. And the, and the simple question to that is why are you not doing that anyway? Why are we not living every day with a faith as, as if Christ is coming this afternoon in, 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 in this instant? It's a barometer of our faith in him. See, sometimes we know information of that degree, and so we're lazy pro, pro, uh, procrastinators. I almost said protagonists. Lazy procrastinators. Oh, well, I have time before he comes. I'm good. I'll get all my affairs in order. You've heard that, right? Oh, well, if I just knew when Jesus was coming, you know, I'd get my life straight, and then I'll believe in him. Well, I don't think Christians would be any different. We're, full, we're still struggling with sin, right? Well, I, I, maybe I need to go to Disney World first before Jesus comes. I've never had the chance to do it. And he's coming, so I don't really need a lot of retirement anymore. So I'm just going to go to Disneyland. I'm going to go see the Grand Canyon. I'm going to do these things. Now, that sounds silly, but if we really are honest with ourselves, that's what we would struggle with. And I think Jesus, that's exactly what he says back in Luke chapter 17 when he says the person on the rooftop sees the judgment coming, and what do they do? They go try to gather all their possessions. Or Lot, his wife, leaves the city. She's escaped the horrible, corrupting sin of that city. And what does she do? She looks back at it. And let's not just, let's not rain judgment upon Lot's wife. Lot himself had to be convinced to leave the city. Remember, the Bible says that Lot hesitated or delayed leaving. I'm like, what? You mean when all the sodomites are outside your door wanting to do horrible things the day before and you're still regretting that decision? That's the sinfulness of man. So we won't know. We trust in God's sovereignty and we prepare for his coming. We ready ourselves. We live as he's called us to live in holiness We represent him as he's called us to be ambassadors for the gospel. And so he says in verse 24, and he reminds us that before the consummation, there must be suffering. That the suffering before the consummation is a future glory preceded by suffering. Jesus says in verse 24, As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus oftentimes uses lightning, and and all of Scripture uses lightning in relationship to the glory and the power of God. In the book of Revelation, you will see uh, the glory of God represented with earthquakes and with um, uh, lightning and thunder. And why? Because 
an infinite God is writing words of revelation about himself to human beings who see lightning and who see thunder. And it helps us understand the power and the majesty of our great God. And so how can he portray the instantaneous return? He's going to say, well, you know how lightning works, right? Lightning's quick. You don't know it's coming. And it's bright and glorious and splendid in the sky. Last year, Amy and I went to Fort Morgan. We stayed in this 13-story high-rise right on the beach. And one night, uh, put the kids to bed, and this huge lightning storm came across north from the ocean toward our condo. And I got my iPad out, and I recorded for like 30 minutes this lightning storm. And, and I sat there, and when it was over, I screened every uh, shot of that, every frame of that video, and I found one picture where lightning had struck the, the water. And I mean, it was just a, a, just a beautiful lightning bolt that hit the water. And I was just amazed at the power of God. And then I found another picture that the light, the light from that lightning had lit up the sky. It did not look like 9.30 at night. It looked like about 12 in the afternoon. The brilliance and the majesty of that lightning that our, our eyes can't even really focus on. Like it took video technology to, to slow that down and to be remind, it reminded me of the beautiful majesty and power of lightning. Well, Jesus decides that the human brain can understand that. And in his second coming, he's saying, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. It's a glorious return. It's not just an instantaneous return. It is a glorious return. Bright and brilliant. Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You think people standing outside in a lightning storm miss the lightning? (laughs) No. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. But before that happens, Jesus says, there must be suffering. Jesus comes in the world. He's born into this world. There is the incarnation or the birth of the Messiah, the Son of God. And after that birth, Jesus lives in humility. With meager means, without being honored and glorified. He lives as many people would call him a peasant, the son of a carpenter. Never does he sit on an earthly throne. Never does he seem to wear expensive clothing. No, he comes as a servant. Because after the birth of the king, there's humility. And after that humility, there is suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is telling his disciples, before this beautiful, splendid, glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, first the Son of Man must suffer and die. So there's birth, there's humility, there's suffering, and then there's glory. 
There's birth, humility, suffering, and glory. And church, let me tell you this morning that that is the same timeline that we live in the new life in Christ. We are born into a new world. In Christ Jesus, we experience a new birth. And and, and in a real, genuine birth in Christ, we'll lead from an arrogant, sin-corrupted person to a humble person. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Because when you belong to the kingdom, you are being humbled. You are humbled by your sin. You are born into this world. You are given a heart of humility where you consider others more important than yourselves. But just as Jesus walks the path of first coming into the world and birth and living a humble life, and just as he suffered, so we will suffer for a time. We will suffer for a time as Christ suffered. I sent in an email this week, this, this video called American Gospel. And let me just tell you that the opposing view of what I'm telling you today is preached in churches all over the world in the prosperity gospel, which, which these false teachers will tell you that God has no desire in this world for you to suffer. Completely contrary to the gospel. Completely contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, which you are in if you follow him. Completely contrary. No, Jesus Christ was born, he lived a humble life, he suffered, he died, and then he was, ra- he was raised to glory. And so we will as well. When we believe in him, when we trust in him, we experience new life, we live lives of humility in this world, we will suffer as he suffered. We will be persecuted as he was persecuted. And then one day we will die, but we will be raised as well to glory. Because Christ is the first fruits of that. And so Jesus says that the, the aspect of the consummation of the kingdom must first come with suffering. But then it leads to glory. But guess what? In a beautiful symmetry of God's creation and God's word, we see the exact opposite for unbelievers. Exact opposite. And Jesus gives us an example In verses 26 through 30. He says, and consider the people in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus says, before there's glory, there's going to be suffering, just as he suffered. For unbelievers, they're living in a temporary glory that will only lead to an eternal suffering. There these people were in the days of Noah. Crazy Noah building a giant boat in a place that didn't have that much water. Noah preached and Noah warned them and invited them, come get on the boat. And they ignored him. Jesus isn't saying that eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage is wrong. 
They just rejected the pleas and the warnings of God's servant. And so the days of Noah ended, or their lives ended, when Noah got on the ark and the floodwaters came and destroyed them all. Or as Lot leaves the city, fire and sulfur burns down and rains down, destroying the evil rebellion. And so the suffering in the consummation is that a future suffering is first preceded by a temporary glory for all unbelievers. All these people in Noah's day were more concerned with the trivial day of of eating and drinking and filling their bellies and and marrying one another and, and just living this temporary happiness and joy and they were ignoring the servant of the Lord who was saying, be saved, a flood is coming, God is going to destroy the earth. They said, no, we're not going to believe the promises of God. We're not going to listen to those things. That's silliness. And that's the world we live in today, who ignore the promises of God, or as I just said in these prosperity preachers, who twist and contort the promises of God to fill their own bellies. But Jesus promises that in his second coming, while we may suffer, we will experience glory with him. So also those who are experiencing a temporary glory on this earth will only experience an eternal judgment and suffering when he comes again. See, Jesus comes with his staff in his second coming, and it's a staff of salvation. He's like the greater Moses who is leading the, the people through the Red Sea. And he's coming and he's leading us through. But he doesn't just bring the staff of salvation for God's elect. He also comes with the sword of judgment. Striking down the nations. He came as the babe in the manger. As the humble, peaceful babe. But he returns as the warrior king who would destroy all who did not believe in him. And so we conclude then with the warning. Verses 31 through 37 is merely the warning. It's the exhortation of this message to his disciples. It's the imperatives. You want to talk about the second coming? Be prepared for that day. Verse 31, on that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. The thesis, verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What's the warning? What are you seeking? The person who is seeking the day of the coming of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns in all of his glory are not, conser- are not concerned to preserve their life. 
They are willing to lose their earthly life because they await a glorious eternal life. But those who seek to preserve it, those who seek to add the preservatives of this world upon themselves like the Egyptians did back in the day where they tried to mummify themselves in hope that they might come back again in the flesh with all their possessions buried with them. No, the people of God are not willing to preserve their life because they know that death will come. They are willing to lose their life because they know that they have already gained new life in Christ. Thus, they will keep it. And so Jesus is saying, what are you seeking? What are you seeking, disciples, in this world? Are your eyes fixed on the second coming of Christ? Has it given you such a perspective that you are not looking for preservatives? You are looking for the coming of your Savior. Are you living holy lives as ambassadors? Are you heaping upon yourselves the cares of this world that will only allow you to miss Jesus coming? Your, your focus will be upon the wrong things. And instead of the glory of salvation, you are merely demonstrating your lostness, your, the, the disingenuous faith that you might have, and you are going to face his judgment. Jesus has quoted verse 33 before. In Matthew chapter 10, in a very similar but different context, Jesus is saying, In verse uh, 35 of Matthew 10, he says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you seeking in this world? The exhortation to his disciples is seek the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. We've heard that before. that God's judgment will come. The warning is that that there is still opportunity and there is still time to understand. But in the end, there will be a dividing line. If you you, uh, are a, a person that is looking forward to the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you will be taken away into the air to live with Jesus for, um, for a time while tribulation comes on the earth, then you're reading verse 37 and you're saying, well, see, there's, there's going to be a dividing. There's going to be one person taken and there's going to be one person left. And I think that that, that, that is an acceptable understanding of that. I don't necessarily think that it's talking about the rapture, but it is talking about the second coming of Christ. Because the theme here is judgment, not rapture. The theme here is rescue, but it's rescue at the second coming. 
And I think the idea here is the same dividing that's going on between the Lord Jesus Christ and his elect and those who have rebelled against him. Like Matthew chapter 25, where the gathering of the nations and the separating of peoples, where the shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats. Placing the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Jesus is saying, at the second coming, judgment will come. One will be taken and the other left. Some commentators say the one taken is the one taken to judgment. Some people say the one taken is the one taken away and saved and rescued. I don't think it's particularly clear. And I don't think it matters. I think what the point is, is that there is judgment. And that the judgment is coming and that Jesus is warning of the judgment. And he's saying, which one are you? Are you the one seeking? Are you the one concerned and preserving? And in verse 37, I I really wrestled with this final warning. The, The disciples say, well, Jesus, where, Lord? And he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And I was like, what does that mean? It's been used before in the Old Testament but it speaks to, I think the best interpretation is that it's, it speaks of finality. Okay? A corpse is someone already dead. The circling of vultures is a sign of death and judgment. So when you see the circling of vultures, you already know something has happened. Death has already occurred. It's too late. It's finality. See, they're saying, where, Lord? And and he's saying, look, if you see the the vultures circling, they're circling a corpse, death has already happened. And you're worried about where it's going to happen. So just be ready. Just be ready. So church today, the simple command for us is to be ready. If you belong to the church of God, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are called to be ready. You are called to be people representing his holy kingdom until he comes again. You are already experiencing the blessings of that kingdom in that already kingdom, and you are looking forward to that aspect of the kingdom that is the not yet kingdom. But then there are some of us today Some of us in this congregation, some of us may be listening online, some of the people that we know in our lives that are not part of that kingdom. And we praise the Lord for his opportunity, his opportunity of mercy and grace, his opportunity for these people to still know that judgment is coming, that Christ will return, and there's still an opportunity to believe and trust in him. And so may we be faithful to deliver that message, to proclaim that message until he comes. Let's pray.